last Saturday, uh, I was doing what I typically do on Saturdays, and I was scanning the news headlines. I like to do that late afternoon, early evening to make sure I haven't missed any uh, current events, and I was especially uh, wanting to see if there was anything I could learn about how people had been remembering uh, 9-11 and what was happening in our world. And as I'm scanning the headlines on various news sites, I keep seeing this headline that pops up about an 18-year-old from Great Britain who won uh, the U.S. Open women's singles tennis event. Uh, Her name is Emma Raducanu, which is a really hard word to say. And I was just fascinated that here's this 18-year-old playing against some of the greats that we have known. And I'm, I'm not a tennis fan. I just want to acknowledge that right now. So I'm not, I'm not an expert on this. As a kid, I watched Andre Agassi and, and Pete Sampras and Steffi Graf and others. And, but I haven't really kept up with tennis since then. But when an 18-year-old beats like these 20- and 30-year-olds, it, it's pretty incredible to me. And so I was reading her story and I learned that she has both Romanian and Chinese heritage And in fact, uh, there was a line in particular in one of the articles I read that just captivated me, probably because of the journey we're on as a church, and we'll get to that in a moment. But but the, the journalist had interviewed her, and she said that she modeled her game after these two current stars, one from Romania and one from China. And I thought, here is this athlete at the top of her game who is willing in an interview to say that I'm learning. I'm modeling my play after someone else. I'm modeling my game after someone else. Anyone who reaches uh, the pinnacle or a high spot in their field knows the importance of learning from other people. Uh, You can look at, say, in the sports world, we can talk about coaching for a moment. If you're a fan of the NFL or college football, then you probably have heard talk at some point about coaching pedigrees. Uh, People who have learned from others. I think about the NFL and you hear names like Mike Holgram and Bill Parcells and and Bill Belichick and Andy Reid. And there are these line of coaches and assistant coaches. Some of them have gone on to get head coaching jobs. and, and, And how did they get that success? They learned from someone that had come before them. If you're in leadership, it's likely that you model in some part your leadership after someone or maybe multiple someones. Maybe there are certain podcasts and, and books and articles and journals that you read, and, and there are certain leaders that you gravitate towards. In the church world, uh, many of us in my role learn from the Craig Rochelles and the Andy Stanleys who have just been these gifted leaders. And so we watch them, we learn from them, and, and some of what they do we want to model. I, just, I was just drawn to those words in, in, in Emma Raducanu's story because as we look at spiritual disciplines, you cannot spell the word discipline without also including the word disciple. Uh, I love what um, one of our staff has done. If you, if you look at our main logo uh, for each series, you can see in the corner just a simple thing that says spiritual disciplines and, and in there it highlights how the word disciple is embedded in that word. If you're new to this journey at Lebanon Christian Church, maybe you're just checking us out and stalking us for the first time online, um, then then we want you to know we're all about making disciples. And and spiritual disciplines are a huge part of that. There are these intentional behaviors, uh, patterns of life, habits, we could even say practices that help us cultivate the character of Jesus. They help us model our lives after Jesus. Uh, There's a beautiful picture in... Uh, the Greek, the original language our New Testament was written in, 
for the word disciple. It's the word methetes. And it means an apprentice or a learner. It gives us that picture that someone who is a disciple is apprenticing, they're watching, they're learning, they're modeling. And so we as disciples of Jesus who profess our faith in King Jesus, we wanna model our life after Jesus. And Jesus participated in these spiritual disciplines. And so as we come to the idea of prayer uh, in this series, I think it's only fitting that we look at Jesus. How did Jesus pray? Last week we looked at the what of prayer, that prayer is at its simplest, talking to God. Uh, I gave you the definition that prayer is real, personal, communication with the God of the universe. But how exactly does that flesh itself out? How exactly do we pray? And so let's look at our great disciple leader, uh, our rabbi, King Jesus. What I wanna do, it's gonna be a little more unconventional this morning, is I just wanna to, to, to paint a broad picture for you, uh, kind of give you uh, the, the overview, and then I kind of want us to peek in and peer in at these episodes of prayer in the life of Jesus before we draw it all together at the end. So it's gonna be more like a tour uh, that we take of scripture. The first place I wanna go is Hebrews chapter five. If you have trouble finding Hebrews in your Bible, the easiest thing to just do is turn to the end, whether it's Revelation or your concordance, and just come back a few pages and you'll hit Hebrews, it's one of the later letters in our New Testament. One of the things I like about the letter to the Hebrews, um, uh, there's several things I like. One of them is the mystery. Uh, we don't know exactly who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, could have been a man, could have been a woman, could have been Paul, could have been another, uh, we, we don't know. But it is so rich in linking the heritage of God's people and the anticipation of God's people with the fulfillment of that in Jesus. And I preached from Hebrews a couple years ago and I shared with you that the Hebrews almost plays like this giant conference on the greatness of God. And as you read through Hebrews, like you get to go to these main sessions that highlight these different things about how incredible Jesus is and how he fulfills what, what we were anticipating um, all along. And kind of tucked in to chapter five is verse seven which gives us this beautiful picture of the one we worship and the one whose life we want to model. It says in Hebrews 5, 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. That is, that is rich. Uh, that, that is chocolate fudge cake with fudge icing rich. Jesus' life characterized by prayer and petitions with fervent cries. Do you, do, you, do you get the picture of the passion that was in Jesus as he would pray? Passionately communicating with the God of the universe. Praying to the one who could save him and he was heard because of his reverence the mission. This, this paints a picture of, of Jesus when it comes to prayer as one who recognized his role within God's great story. And he was committed to praying that God's purposes would prevail. The idea that he could offer up in honesty and vulnerability and humility and say, 
God, my cries are yours, my requests are yours, answer them, and that God would hear him. What a beautiful picture of prayer. And so as we look at how to pray, we want to look at the example of Jesus. And this is just that broad, beautiful picture. Maybe, maybe think of this as the, the mansion, the finished piece. This is who Jesus was as he prayed. This is how Jesus prayed. But let's, let's kind of walk around the mansion and peer into the windows. What does this look like specifically? Like, 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 what were some of these fervent cries that produced these tears? What, what were some of those ways that God heard him and answered? And so for that, I want to just, again, just pull up and look in a few windows. The first window is Matthew chapter 11. We're going to hang out in the Gospels here for a little bit. Uh, the Gospels are what we might call theological biographies. And I use that word cautious, this phrase, that phrase cautiously because sometimes uh, if we talk about biography that reports on the life of another, um, we, we might be tempted to just kind of put that on the shelf with other biographies about other great people in history. And while the stories that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us are the story of Jesus' life, they are more than just a biography. And that's why I put the word theological in front of that. They tell us about God. They're inspired by God's spirit. And so as we have these accounts of Jesus' life, we get to see him. And here's one of the windows into Jesus' prayer life, Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, he, he just speaks. He talks to God. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Well, why do we look through this window? What does it tell us about these fervent cries and tears of Jesus? Well, it tells us that as Jesus prayed, one of the ways he prayed, one of the hows, was that he knew the importance of praising God and acknowledging his greatness. Jesus, who comes from the Father, again, this beautiful mystery that's hard to articulate and wrap our minds around. He is both fully God and fully man. And even as he speaks to God, he praises him. He acknowledges his greatness. I praise you, Father. He looks at who he is as the creator, as the one who loves his creation. He looks at him as the Lord, the master, the, the one overseeing, the king of heaven and earth. He, he proclaims how, how, how he hides some things and reveals some things. He, he just speaks of the greatness of who God is. So when we look at the fervent cries and tears of Jesus, and we say, how did Jesus pray? Yeah, he prayed passionately. Yeah, God heard him. But one of the ways he prayed was just acknowledging the greatness of God. Like a, a regular part of Jesus' prayer life was just understanding the greatness of who God is and acknowledging that through his words. What's another window? Well, we can go to Matthew chapter 26, another episode of Jesus praying. In the middle of Matthew 26, we find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Um, for some of you, you know that means that we are nearing the end of Jesus' earthly life He's soon to be betrayed. He's soon to be handed over, falsely accused, tortured, hung on a cross, and die. But prior to that, he goes to this garden, and he invites his disciples to pray with him. And if you know the story, his disciples are a little too sleepy, Passover meal kind of hangover, and, and they're, they're falling asleep on him. Their bellies are full. 
But listen to Jesus' prayer in Matthew 26, verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed. My father, again, acknowledging God's greatness, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. He just vulnerably asked God, the cup, this, what I'm about to receive, what's about to happen to me. He has the, the end in mind and the suffering that's coming. And he says, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. God, would you remove that? But even as he asks that, listen to his surrender and his submission. He says, not as I will, but as you will. God, God, here's, here's, here's what I'm feeling. It's gonna get really hard. I need your help. And God, if it's possible, can we just, can we just bypass this and maybe do this a different way? But, but God, ultimately, it's not about what I want, God. It's about what you want. He just kind of submits himself. He confesses that God's way is better than his way. And after praying that, he goes to rouse the disciples and tries to encourage them to keep praying. And we come back in verse 42, and here he is again. My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Do you, just, do you, do you hear Jesus' desire to submit, to surrender, to say, God, listen, I want your best in this world. Again, another window. We have Jesus praising God, expressing adoration for God. We have Jesus submitting, confessing that God's way is best. Uh, another window. You can turn back to Matthew chapter 14. An element we see in Jesus' prayers um, throughout his life is an idea of giving thanks to God. Gratitude and thanksgiving was rooted in his prayer life, which shouldn't surprise us if we go to Jesus' prayer book, which would be the Psalms or his song book, the Psalms. Uh, there are a multitude of expressions by David and Asaph and others who um, express gratitude to God and they thank God for who he is and what he's done. And there's just this little, this little nugget tucked into Matthew chapter 14. It says that Jesus sees the large crowd and they need something to eat. And so they, they find these loaves of bread and these fish. And verse 19, it says, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. We see the same expression when Jesus calls Lazarus from the tomb after he's already died. We see the same expression in the upper room when uh, Jesus is changing the way they'll forever see Passover. Audrey just spoke to that a little bit. Um, this is bread is my body, and he gave thanks. Um, this, this cup is my blood, and he gave thanks. Jesus knew the importance of gratitude and thanksgiving as he talked to God. Here's another window, and this is not an exhaustive view of Jesus' prayer life, but another window we can find in John 17. Not only did Jesus express praise to God and acknowledge his greatness, not only did he express his dependence and his submission to God, not, not only was he committed to gratitude and thanksgiving, but John 17 gives us this beautiful prayer, this beautiful conversation between Jesus and the Father where he's expressing needs. His own needs, he prays that God would be glorified in his life. He asks God to work in his life in specific ways. And then as you read John 17, he asks God to intervene in his disciples' lives. He, he prays on behalf of his disciples. And by the way, if you read John 17, you'll read that Jesus even has us in mind. 
um, those that will follow because of the disciples. He was even praying for you, which, by the way, that's, that's pretty profound, that long before you were in your mother's womb, Jesus had you in mind and was praying for you. If that doesn't speak to God's care for you and his love for you, I don't know what does. So here's this picture. Even as we look at Hebrews and begin there, Hebrews chapter five, verse seven, that while he was on earth, Jesus lifted up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. And, and, and Jesus was heard because of his reverence to mission. Even as we get that, that beautiful view, we start peering into the windows and we see that part of those prayers were adoration and part of those prayers were submission and confession and part of those prayers were thanksgiving and part of those prayers were asking God for his own needs and for the needs of others. And so as we keep that in mind, I want you to hold that, and then I want you to come with me to Luke chapter 11. As we think about how to pray, the example of our Jesus, his model. In Luke 11, 1, his closest disciples come to him. It says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Here are these men who have walked with Jesus for months at this point, maybe longer. They've seen Jesus go off to a quiet place to pray on a number of occasions and they've just sat and watched and observed or stood and watched and observed and they see him praying and the way he prays is different. These are men that are no strangers to prayer. Rooted in the history of their people, rooted in the Jewish faith were, were prayers. In fact, uh, hundreds of years before Jesus, uh, there were these prayers that had kind of been adopted as, as prayers you would pray every day throughout the hours of the day. Like these, these men knew how to pray, but they saw something different in Jesus. Lord, will you teach us to pray? Oftentimes when we come together in places like this, and we talk about prayer. Uh, some that have been following Jesus for a long time are tempted to check out. I've been praying a long time, Craig. I, I, I know how to pray. But you know, there are a lot of lessons in life that we need to be reminded of all life long because we forget them easily. One of the earliest lessons I learned from my parents was to be kind. And yet here we sit a few decades later and we're spending money to put signs in our yards that say, be kind. Because there's just some things that we need to be reminded of that we forget. So even if you've been praying for a really long time, I hope that you will see the beauty and the simplicity in modeling your prayer life after Jesus. And so you might even come with the disciples to Jesus in this moment and humbly say, Lord, will you teach us to pray? And what follows in Luke's account is a very brief version of what we often call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's abbreviated, whether that's because Luke assumed his audience knew or he's just trying to move through the story, we, we don't know. But what I want to do is I want to turn back to Jesus' first teaching on this prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And even as we hold the example of Jesus and what we've seen about his fervent cries and tears in one hand, I think you're going to find great familiarity as Jesus gives a model prayer. And by the way, we call this a model prayer uh, because it's not the only prayer. Um, Jesus invites you to pray these, these words alongside of him, but please understand that 
They're a portrait. They're a picture of what should be included in our prayers. It's not that it had to be recited verbatim. He's asked how to pray, and he says, okay, here are the components of prayer that is powerful and effective. Verse 9 in Matthew chapter 6, he says this, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. probably doesn't surprise us that as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he begins with something we see in his own life. He just starts with the greatness of God. You could spend hours on almost all of these statements. We talked a little bit last week about the, the rich reminder that God is a father that was unique. Jesus is changing the picture of how people approach God. There, there's a an idea of intimacy that's communicated here. We can come to, to God who is so great that he acts as a loving, perfect father to us. He, he is in heaven, which is not saying that he's locked into one location that's not here on earth. It's actually elevating us to see that God is at work, not just here, but everywhere. It's, a, it, it's an idea that should draw our minds upwards to see the greatness and the majesty of God. Hallowed be your name. May your name be made holy. In ancient Near East names expressed character and reputation and the plea of Jesus as we pray, we approach God with this awe and this wonder and this deep adoration that says, God, I want the greatness of who you are to be kept that way. That people would see that you alone are the God of the universe. That people would see that you alone are perfect. That people would see that you alone reign in splendor and glory. That that you are great. And after adoring God and praising him, he simply submissively says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think it's the fitting um, next part of the prayer because once you see the greatness of who God is and you begin there, you begin to see your inadequacy um, in a startling way. Jesus just submits. He says, God, it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there's an old acronym I'll share with you again later. I've shared with you it before. But uh, in, in that acronym, as we look at the Lord's Prayer, we'll, we'll say Jesus turns to confession. Unfortunately, we've, we've made confession more of a one-dimensional word. And typically when we talk about the word confession, we think that it's just acknowledging the wrong things that we've done. But confession is really acknowledging any inadequacy and in how things should be. And so as Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's simply saying, God, listen, apart from you, I cannot do this. Apart from you, we cannot reach the, the best of what is supposed to be. And so confessing is just recognizing our limitations in God's unlimited nature. And that should be part of our conversations with God. He turns to asking of God, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This isn't an exhaustive list of your needs or my needs, but Jesus is just kind of showing the broad stroke of these are the things that we need as people. We need daily provision. We need spiritual healing. We need God's forgiveness. We need to be agents of providing forgiveness to others. And we need God's guidance. And so as we pray, 
acknowledging the greatness of who he is and recognizing our own inadequacy, we say, God, will you work? Will you move not just in my life but the life of others? What I love about the, the Lord's Prayer, this model prayer, is that it kind of has a communal aspect to it. Jesus doesn't pray um, individualistically. He doesn't say, give me today my daily bread. But he finds himself and he finds the disciples in the context of others. Give us our daily bread. Help us. And as we pray, we ask God not just for our own needs, but for the needs of others and those around us. There's one element that doesn't just stand out and grab us of what we saw in Jesus' prayer life, and that's thanksgiving. Uh, however, it's, 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 it's in here. It's beneath the request for provision for a Jew to think of asking God for something without also acknowledging his faithfulness uh, would have been unheard of. And so kind of in asking God for things is this idea of gratitude. But if that's not clear enough for you, we could take you to the words of Philippians chapter 4 where Paul encourages and commands the Philippian believers that in all things, by prayer and petition, they should submit their request to God with thanksgiving. And so as you look at this total picture, what we see in Jesus and what it really looked like to offer up these fervent cries and tears to a God who hears, as we look at his example of one who expresses praise to God and acknowledges his own position, as we, we look at him as one who, who, who thanks God and, and asks of God, and then we look at his model prayer, we see this beauty of what should be present in our prayers. And so if we come up with the disciples to Jesus and we say, Lord, teach us how to pray, I believe God looks back at us and says, here's how. Yeah, talk to me. Yeah, yeah prayer is real personal communication with me, the God of the universe. And in those prayers, remember how great I am. Adore me. Remember your place and your inadequacy apart from me. Confess and submit. Express thanksgiving. Be reminded of all the ways I've already come through for you in the past. And come to me as a loving father who grants requests and asks of me for you and for others. For centuries, that's probably too broad of a term, at least for the last 120 years, the earliest we found that someone taught in a gathering of believers was in the late 1880s, this acronym of ACTS, A-C-T-S. It's, it's just a guide for prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So as we look at the spiritual discipline of prayer, let's model our lives after Jesus and, and begin to practice it. You may say, well, Craig, do I have to include these elements? Well, no, but why, why wouldn't we? Prayer is talking to God. Prayer, prayer is real personal communication with the God of the universe. But we can experience greater transformation and effectiveness in our prayers as we model our prayers after Jesus. A few weeks ago, Tom Sears was preaching on fasting. And he used this beautiful image of an athlete. And he talked about how in fasting, it's like the athlete in the, the workout room, in the gym, who's, who's, who's preparing themselves for a practice that comes later and the game that comes later. And, and how sometimes spiritual disciplines are preparing us for how God will use us and, and what he wants to do in us. And I want to go back to that gym for a moment for a different reason. I want you to picture that gym, and for those of you that have gone to gyms and worked out, whether it's your own gym at your home or a place you pay, 
there are really two different types of people in the gym. There are those who have a plan, who are intentional, and they know that this is my, my chest and arms day, and this is my legs and glutes day, and this is my cardio day, and, and these are the machines that I'm using. And then there are those people that are, are a little more haphazard with their gym time. They're like, I'm just going to the gym. And it's whatever machine's open, it's whatever machine's not sweaty and needs cleaned up, it's whatever, whatever, whatever workout thing is available, that's what they do. Let me ask you this, who benefits most, or not who benefits most, who benefits from the gym? The person who has no plan or the person that has a plan? Well, it's a trick question. They both do, right? They both benefit. Even if I work out my arms and my chest all day, I might have these little twigs one day, but at least I'll be strong up here. There's a little bit going on. Like there's, there's a little bit of health there. I still benefit, but who benefits more? The person with the plan. As, as we pray, you, you can keep talking to God and you can keep communicating with the God of the universe. And some prayer is better than no prayer. But if you'll intentionally strive to pray as Jesus prayed, you'll open up a whole new world of seeing God at work and his provision and the comfort and the peace that comes from living in relationship with our incredible God. And so my challenge to you today, because if you wait till tomorrow, you probably won't do it, is would you just pray at some point today modeled after Jesus? Would you adore him? Would you confess? Would you give thanks? And would you ask not just for your needs, but the needs of others? And would you wake up tomorrow and try to do it again? And would you see God build in you this beautiful rhythm of speaking to him? And here's what happens as we practice these disciplines and disciplines like prayer, is that God helps us continue to align our hearts with his. And that's so important because each of our lives, and sometimes suddenly, they're rocked by the events of this world. But as we align with him, he helps us continue to see with greater clarity in the midst of our sorrow and our suffering and our trials and our troubles. So would you pray like Jesus? Let's go to him. Father, thank you. Again, thank you for the invitation to speak to you. and the deep mystery that you hear us. And Father, would we look to your example, would we look to your words, and would you teach us how to pray like you? And God, as we do, would our hearts just grow ever more close to yours? And get all the things that come with that, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the faithfulness, and the self-control, would they be ours through the power of your spirit? We pray these things in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen.